welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBersier. And if you want to support the show, check out our merch store over on Etsy at etsy.com slash shop slash Beyond Blathers. And make sure to follow us on TikTok at Beyond underscore Blathers. So today we're wrapping up our series on I'm not sure. I I realized we didn't make a name for this series. We just said that the story would continue like a to be continued kind of situation. Maybe like part three of the kelp forest saga. But yeah, now we're actually going to talk about kelp forests and kelp. So this episode, we're going to spill the tea. There's going to be drama, heartbreak and villainous sea urchins. So get ready. Yeah, I'm very excited about this. As I've said, this is definitely one of my favorite ecosystems. And it also feels really fitting to be talking about this right now because I'm actually out on Saturna Island at my dad's house in the Gulf Islands in British Columbia right now. So yeah, there are literally like kelp forests right outside my door with harbor seals swimming through them and not to brag too much, but there have been a lot of humpbacks here this week, which has been so nice. Like, I think we've seen them every day. Wow. I'm so jealous. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, really cool. Yeah, so I guess let's get into it. So we're kind of calling this the kelp forest episode, but it's weird in Animal Crossing, there's just like generic seaweed which I think is sad because there are lots of different interesting types of seaweed and I would have appreciated having some like diversity, but instead we just have seaweed. (laughs) So we're going to talk about that, but we also reserve the right, I think, to do other types of seaweed in the future. Oh, definitely. I like haven't even like seaweed has such a crazy like food slash like aquaculture story that I literally I looked at that and I was like, we don't have time for that today. <laughs> no, definitely. Like, we need to we zoom in. We do not have time, so we're not going to talk about that. But I guess let's see what Blathers has to say about seaweed in general. So if you bring seaweed to Blathers, he'll say, Let it be known that seaweed is a misnomer of the highest order. That is, it is not a noxious weed so much as it is a marine algae most beneficial to life on land and sea. Seaweed, you see, provides essential habitat and food for all manner of marine creatures, and it creates a great deal of the oxygen we land lovers love to breathe, too. Ooh. And yet, I can't help but shudder when the slimy stuff touches my toes during a swim. Hoot. The horror. Wait, this is confirmed that Blathers swims? You know what? I have seen videos of owls swimming. Wait. Really? Oh, wait, no. Oh, sorry. I'm thinking about bald eagles. Oh, mistake. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like I may have seen owls swimming, but I'm not sure. But I don't know. If anyone has some <laughs> great horned owl swimming footage, I guess send it our way. But I, this is, this is interesting. This is an interesting revelation from Plathers. Yeah. I guess he has to collect things in the ocean if he doesn't like bugs. He doesn't really have many other options on the island. Yeah, But I thought he sends us to go do it. I guess so. Maybe when he was uh, an undergrad and had to do a bunch of weird field jobs. 
<laughs> when he was a lowly field tech. Yeah. <laughs> I like to imagine Blathers going for a swim with Pascal. <laughs> <laughs> that would be quite the clash of personalities. Yeah. Well, that seemed like a pretty general description. <laughs> so I I agree with Blathers. Seaweed is an unfair name. And it's also absolutely essential to the ecosystem. I should also mention that kelp and seaweed are algae, and kelp in particular is a brown algae. So we should probably address the seaweed versus kelp thing. So both are English names that get applied somewhat differently to different species. In general, seaweed refers to like visible macroalgaes. And kelp is more specific. It's the common name that usually refers to algaes in the group Laminarialis. And in this group, there are about 112 species within 33 genera. The group Laminarialis likely evolved around 100 million years ago, with the current species having been around for the past 25 to 30 million years. So yeah, they've been around a fairly long time. They probably evolved in the cold waters off Japan all those years ago. And today, the oceans surrounding Japan have the largest diversity of kelps. Kelps can be found scattered around the world, including throughout the Arctic, because they need cold water to survive. So you don't really find them in tropical regions, which is kind of cool because I feel like with our show, we talk about animals that are almost exclusively in the tropics. So it's a refreshing yeah. change of pace. Depending on the species of kelp, they can also get to up to 150 feet or 45 meters long, which is so big. It's the height of a four-story office building. And when I think, when I picture that, I'm like, that's, that's quite a big, like that, that would be a really tall tree. So I think it's pretty cool that they can get that tall. That's why it's like forest for sure. Oh, for sure. And under ideal conditions, they can grow two feet in a single day. Like, think about if you had a tree in your backyard and it just grew two feet. That's insane. So they're really, really fast growing. And in terms of like how they grow, I mean, like we said, some are like trees. They kind of grow straight up into the water column. But other species of kelp will sort of sprawl like carpet across the ocean floor. The ones that are tall like a tree, they're sort of the more well-known kelps. And they have these gas-filled bulbs that lift their stalks into the into the water column and up, up towards the surface. We're going to call those stalks stipes because that's like the correct term for algae. <laughs> so yeah, they, they have bulbs that lift the stipes up. And a single kelp can live a very long time, depending on the species. Bull kelp will only live a year, but some species can live two or five years. And in Norway, a species of brown algae can live all the way up to 11 years. So they do, they, they do have a bit of a long lifespan. And so what kind of habitat conditions do they prefer? Like you said, they need cold water, not tropical water. Yeah, so they need that cold water it needs to be nutrient-rich, and importantly, they can really only live in shallow ocean because they need to be able to reach the surface of the water to absorb sunlight to transform into energy. So yeah, that's a very important aspect of all this is they're not... It's funny because in Animal Crossing, they're considered like a, quote, deep-sea creature. They are not deep-sea. They have to be in shallow water. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so that's just like a quick crash course on what kelp is. 
but that's not really what we're here to talk about today. Today, we're going to talk about kelp forests, like as a, as a whole ecosystem. Here, I wanted to give you a chance, Sophia, if you wanted to say anything more about kelp forests as a West Coaster, you know, kelp is probably much more tied to your life. I know, like, for me, I always remember, like, finding long pieces of bull kelp on the beach when my family would go visit our family in Victoria and, like, we'd, like, whip each other with it. And it was funny. <laughs> and we'd yeah, ourselves. definitely. Yeah. Um, there was always like these little flies jumping around the kelp. Yeah. I mean, I think if if anyone has especially kayaked around this kind of area where you have kelp forests, it's so amazing because they're they're so thick. Mm-hmm. And depending on kind of the tide and how clear the conditions are, like you can see how far down they go. And one thing that they're very useful for if you're you know, kayaking or I guess diving or something like that is you can tell which way the current's moving and like how fast and strong it is based on the kelp forest. Because, yeah, like a balloon, they'll kind of like wave in the current. So if they're all being pulled in one direction, then you know that that's the way that the current is flowing. So that's always like a good trick to check. But yeah, there's uh, there's always lots of interesting like, you know, fish swimming around in there and and like I said harbor seals and everything so I just think they're so magical I mean I haven't I don't dive and stuff so I haven't seen them from that perspective but when when I see photos of them and everything like to be you know an orca like roaming through the kelp forests it just looks so magical to me yeah they're they're beautiful I remember it's funny you mentioned kayaking because I remember when I was pretty young like maybe like 10. Uh, I was kayaking with my dad in Victoria and like there were these kelp forests and a ton of harbor seals around and I was kind of like scaring myself because I would like look down and the sun was shining through the kelp forest and I thought it looked a lot like like tentacles reaching up and I was like yeah oh so spooky and as I'm looking down this seal swims right under me and like looked up and it was it was it's like an image that's just burned into my brain forever like it freaked me out but it was also so cool like just the way it kind of swam under and then like paused and kind of looked up and then kept going and the light was just like perfectly hitting it they're so curious and like also when you're kayaking the bull kelp will like you know if you I've accidentally kind of gone over a big patch of bull kelp and you just basically kind of get stuck yeah and they're like (laughs) they're kind of all like their bulbs are all sort of hitting the kayak and you can't move your paddle. Yeah, it's like a little island. Yeah, Yeah. it really, it can be very thick and dense. And yeah, you kind of have to, you have to watch out for it because it's everywhere here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess we should talk about the kelp forest's places. So I love that they're called kelp forests because I think it's just really accurate to the purpose they serve. Like, let's imagine, like, everyone who's listening, imagine you're swimming through the ocean and you arrive at one of these vast swaths of kelp growing up from the ground or the ocean floor. And let's picture this ecosystem like a forest. If we go to the bottom, that's where the stipes attach to the ground with these root-like anchors that secure them to the rocks on the ocean floor. And they don't have roots because that's not really how they get their nutrient. Like, they don't have... Roots absorb nutrients and these sort of anchors are not absorbing any nutrients basically so that's why it's not a root 
So we're at the bottom and it's very dark and shadowy there, but there are all these sea stars and urchins and other invertebrates attached to the rocks all around. And here, abalone will eat pieces of detached kelp fronds that float down, and some snails and other invertebrates will feed on the live kelp. And all these pieces of kelp that have been decomposed by bacteria, all these sort of like snowy flakes will drift to the bottom of the forest and provide a great meal for filter feeders like sponges or deposit feeders like sea cucumbers. And then if you swim up a bit, you have the area around the stipes where fish can hide away and safely brood their young. And between the clumps of stipes, you have corridors where larger creatures like sharks and seals and whales can meander through. And they may be looking for prey like fish or marine mammals, or they might be hiding from predators themselves. Gray whales are known to hide their calves in the kelp forests. And in fact, many species will use the kelp forest to seek shelter from storms and strong waves. And then finally, if we swam all the way to the very top of the forest, you have the canopy, the place where the bulbs and thick leafy strands of kelp bunch up and create little islands. Like Sophie and I were talking about, they're, they're really hard to kayak through. And often here, birds will land and pick at the flies and fish. There will also be sea otters here. And they will, as Sophia mentioned last episode, strap themselves in with like kelp fronds during storms or wavy days so they don't drift off. That's so beautiful. I love that description. It's just, I, I just love like thinking of ecosystems like a diorama in a kid's book. <laughs> like you see the little layers and everything. Yeah. And the other cool thing is that Great white sharks, they used to be known for avoiding kelp forests, but researchers with the Monterey Bay Aquarium attached video cameras to white sharks, and they found that the sharks would sometimes explore the canopies of the kelp forest, uh, which isn't ideal for the otters and the seals, but this happens in South Africa, so maybe it's not the case in other parts of the world, but I thought that was pretty cool too. So these ecosystems are incredibly important for hundreds, if not thousands of species. They are basically the cold water equivalent to coral reefs. But unlike coral reefs, kelp forests are quite variable. The kelp grows quickly so they can appear fast in new places. And at the same time, they're vulnerable to being ripped up by storms and disappearing. But we'll talk more about those threats later. Yeah. Oh, they're so, so important. I hadn't thought of them as the cold water equivalent to coral reefs, but they totally are. Yeah, they're definitely like a lot of the things I read said they are one of the most biodiverse ecosystems in the ocean. Wow. And so obviously they're really important for biodiversity and just providing such important habitat for so many creatures in the ecosystem. Can you talk about any other ecosystem services that kelp forests provide? Yeah, so for one, kelp are really useful in protecting coastlines. They act as wave breakers and surfers tend to really like them because they dampen the ocean swells. And they also protect coastlines from erosion by dampening those waves. They really do act like trees in that way. They will be particularly useful as climate change is predicted to result in more storms that could threaten coastlines. So that's another reason we really need them. And then the other thing is that kelp are also known for absorbing large amounts of carbon dioxide in the ocean and in the atmosphere. Like trees, they can act as carbon sinks and pump oxygen into the surrounding water, which is great for all the different creatures that live around them. Yeah, that is something we 
need a lot more of. Like, I feel like we really focus on things like tree planting and everything. But when you think about how much potential there is in the ocean to absorb and like sink carbon dioxide, it really should not be ignored. Yeah. And especially because with kelp, they grow so fast and trees don't. Yeah. It it just really, I mean, there's a lot of challenges with it. It's not like we can just go plant kelp wherever we want easily, but there's, there's definitely potential there in people taking advantage of that, which is good. So, yeah, getting into the threats, though, I mean, this is the story. So kelp forests have been facing human-made threats for a long time, all around the world. But things started getting worse on the west coast of North America in 2013, starting with the sea stars. So during the June of 2013, researchers in Washington state reported something really weird going on to the relatively common ochre sea stars that lived along the ocean floor. Again and again, they saw sea stars basically melting and disintegrating into nothing in a matter of days. First, lesions would appear on their bodies, and then their limbs would fall off until they decayed away, with maybe some goo left in their place. To me, I see pictures of this, and I was like, they're being like Thanos snapped out of existence. Like, they're just disappearing into dust. Now, I should mention this disintegrating symptom in sea stars ordinarily will happen if they're just stranded out of water. But this was happening to sea stars in their normal habitat among infected stars. So this was obviously some kind of disease. And then in August, more reports start showing up, this time from just north of Vancouver, where sunflower sea stars were dying off. Then other species started showing signs of sea star wasting syndrome, which is what it was eventually called. Through October to November, Monterey, California saw their ochre and sunflower sea stars begin to die off. And by the summer of 2014, the disease had spread to Oregon and Mexico. This became the largest observed epidemic among wild marine animals ever. And it affected 20 species of sea star in that area. And it happened fast. In some regions, it was a matter of weeks and all the sunflower sea stars were just gone. And these sunflower sea stars are really beautiful. They're the size of a trash can lid with 20 to 30 arms. And they used to be abundant from Mexico all the way up to Alaska. The research I'm about to cite comes from a really big study done by Oregon State University, the Nature Conservancy, and over 60 partner institutions. And they found out that since the start of this sea star epidemic, over 90% of the sunflower sea star population has been killed by the disease. That's 5.75 billion sunflower sea stars gone in that study area. It's insane. Oh my gosh. So they basically gone extinct. <laughs> like Yeah, that's almost like the population of humans yeah, on the planet. That is a huge number of very big animals. The sunflower sea star went from really relative abundance along the west coast to being on the critically endangered list in, in less than eight years. And tragically, there are no signs of population recovery at this point. It's unbelievable. And to quote the Nature Conservancy, quote, sunflower sea stars are now nearly absent in the contiguous United States and Mexico. No stars have been observed in Mexico since 2016, none in California since 2018, and only a handful in the outer coasts of Oregon and Washington since 2018. They are still present in British Columbia and Alaska, but only at a fraction of their former population in most places. Yeah, I mean, actually here on Saturna, they're gearing up 
for a bio blitz on May 17th, which is something they do every year now where uh, it's like a community science count of sea stars. Wow. So my dad participates each year and they everyone gets assigned a zone and you go out and count how many sea stars you can find in the zone. I couldn't find anything. It seems like this is something that kind of happens up and down the coast, but I couldn't find sort of an overarching organization Mm. that's like collecting all this data. Like I don't really know what happens with the data. (laughs) I would be really like interested to know if there's like an overarching kind of research group or something that's doing something with these numbers, but it's still, I think, important to kind of categorize or, or collect data around whether there is a recovery or just kind of how many sea stars there are around. Yeah, it sounds like this was such a severe incident that really any information is probably useful. Like just knowing, okay, are the sea stars there? What's there? Are they showing signs of the disease? Any of that sort of information is really important. So I would hope that someone's <laughs> someone's getting hold of the data in some way. Yeah, so do they know yet what causes the sea star wasting syndrome? Yeah, this, or disease. Is it yeah, disease? it's disease syndrome. I guess the name is syndrome, but it's a disease, and they they don't really know. It's it's still a mystery. There's many ideas out there by researchers, but there isn't really a single perfect answer, which is kind of scary. Like you kind of you hear about these sorts of things, and you hope there's like you at least know what it is. If the the problem's going to be hard to solve, like hopefully you at least have an idea of what's going on. And they do have some ideas. It was likely triggered by sea star associated denzoviruses, but the details of like the virus and whether it was multiple viruses is really murky. So sea star associated denzovirus has been a lot around a long time. It was even found in a museum specimen from 1942. And asymptomatic individuals also tested positive for this virus in 2013 and 2014 making scientists kind of wonder whether the virus has just changed its virulence and maybe the sea stars are becoming more vulnerable because of that. Okay, so basically there's a lot of research that's like coming out like right now about this like denzovirus stuff. One article I had read was having a hard time pinning denzovirus down because it seems like denzoviruses are really diverse and no single virus is probably the cause of this. It might be a whole group of viruses there's also a lot of people who were thinking that it had to, something to do with the increasing ocean temperatures, cause, which caused sea stars to become more vulnerable to viruses. But then in Oregon and parts of California, the water was actually cooler than usual when the virus broke out. So then like, oh, maybe it's different like viruses or virus genotypes that cause like different, that will like express themselves differently, I guess, in, in how vulnerable the sea stars are. But now Sophia's also found an article that just came out. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your article, Sophia? Yeah, so there there was a 2021 article in Frontiers in Microbiology that basically says that there's evidence that that the illness is caused by microorganisms that suck up oxygen from the water around the sea stars and, and suffocate them. And the researchers who worked on this article said that, you know, researchers have ruled out, like, water temperature and the denzovirus because they said that subsequent investigation failed to show a consistent association between denzovirus and presence of disease. So, yeah, I was I was looking at this because I'm, like, 
potentially working on an article about sea star wasting disease, but it definitely seems like, well, so, so I originally saw this because there was this really short, like, article in Massive Science about, like, the mysterious cause of sea star wasting syndrome is a mystery no more. Um, so I don't think we can, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it does not seem like we can say, oh, yes, this is definitely the cause of wasting syndrome. I feel like it would be a bigger news story if scientists had definitively figured out what it was because that would be huge. I mean, we would, I hope, be able to try to figure out a way to stop it. I don't Mm -hmm. know. And you said that even in that paper, they were, they said they're still not sure, right? Yeah. um, They said, quote, the cause of SSW is unresolved. (laughs) So... (laughs) So yeah, it's, yeah, I don't. Oh, it's so complicated, there's... and I think it just really goes to show ecology is hard. <laughs> it's hard, and it's and people disagree, and and the information like changes so often, especially with something weird like this, where it's so I guess hard to study in some ways because of how weird it is and how widespread, and and also the ocean is seems hard to study. <laughs> like, yeah, totally, and. They're kind of basically trying to figure out how they can kind of replicate it, it seems like, you know, and mm-hmm. yeah, the the conclusion for this 2021 study says that their results support the hypothesis that sea star wasting syndrome is influenced by microorganisms inhabiting the animal water surface. So it sounds like, you know, they basically that's what science is. They weren't able to prove that it doesn't do that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's. I guess the other thing, too, is it it's very likely caused by like a combination of factors. And I think that's the challenge of this is trying to pinpoint one particular reason when it very well could have been many things that happened at once that made it an epidemic, you know? Like, yeah. So, yeah, I, I know that's probably not helpful. <laughs> Maybe that's confusing to listen to, but I guess this is science and this is the evolution of knowledge and it's not always clean and clear yeah and I mean it's great to know that there are a lot of scientists trying to figure out what's going on oh totally yeah there's so many papers like that's why I didn't see that one is I was so busy with like all these other ones yeah trying to like trace it back from like 20 because for me I I go oh a paper from 2018 that's so recent because with bugs there's not very many papers (laughs) um with this uh, it seems like there's a lot more literature on it right so we'll we'll keep it as unresolved (laughs) Yeah, totally, totally. So the other kind of interesting thing about this is this wasn't the first time a sea star epidemic has been observed. So in 1978, the sun star Heliaster Kubinji nearly went extinct uh, in about three years in the Gulf of California due to an unknown disease. And various other localized incidents of sea star wasting syndrome occurred throughout the rest of the 70s into the 80s. So we've seen this before. In in all these cases, it never got as bad as this. And, and so that's why biologists are so concerned. It also doesn't seem like it's gone. Like, I, there seem to still be incidents here and there of it. It's not like this happened and it just totally went away. So yeah, biologists are on edge, understandably. Totally. Well, so I guess to kind of connect it back to kelp. I mean, we did a whole sea star episode and didn't talk about sea star wasting syndrome, which is probably confusing listeners. So (laughs) can you kind of explain why this is relevant to kelp forests? 
Absolutely. So to understand the next part, we need to remember that sea stars are really fierce predators of many invertebrates. And the sunflower sea star was one of the most fearsome of them all. I feel bad saying was. I should say is, but I mean, anyway, spoiler alert, they all died. (laughs) Um, So it would move at speeds of two meters a minute, which I know doesn't sound impressive, but it's really fast for a sea star. It's fearsome. It is the tiger of the ocean. And its prey will display these really spectacular feats to escape it. Like the northern abalone or the nettles cockle, which they'll both basically like leap away from a sea star with these muscular feet. It's really crazy to see a video of this. They just like, you see this like clam looking thing and it just like throws itself out of the way. Um, (laughs) And then other sea stars, they'll just like, you know, do their version of like running away at the mere detection of a sunflower star. So they're, they're pretty fearsome predators for their prey. All this to say that the sunflower sea star was a keystone predator. And something kind of neat I found out was the term keystone predator was first used in the 1960s to describe the ochre sea star in a study that showed how when populations of ochre star were lost from ecosystems, there was a corresponding loss of biodiversity in those regions. And I just thought that was kind of like an interesting fact because we talk about keystone predators a lot in all kinds of ecology. So it originates with the sea star. Wow, they're the OG keystone predators. Yeah, really cool. So when the sunflower sea star and all these sea stars disappeared, there was a massive explosion in the population of one of its main prey, sea urchins, specifically purple and green sea urchins. Green urchin populations quadrupled in size at one site in Howe Sound. And this may have been directly as a result of less urchins being eaten, or more likely, they were recolonizing areas that they'd previously been driven out of because of the presence of sea star predators. One way or the other, the urchins came to these regions and they basically became these barren deserts. It really reminds me of like in Lion King when Scar takes over the Pride Lands and it becomes like this awful desert and everything is out of balance. <laughs> and I'm like, that's that's the sea stars. We need the sea star king remake of the Lion King. Yeah, like Lion King meets Finding Nemo. Oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> like the two best from my childhood. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, just imagine that, these like horrible deserts. They are called urchin barrens, which I think is such a cool and scary name. Because when urchins come in, they eat all the kelp. They just mow it down. And this has resulted in massive swaths of kelp forests being absolutely devastated. And for other prey of the sea stars like crustaceans, They didn't seem to do as well despite the loss of their sea star predators, possibly because of the loss of the kelp forest that provided cover and breeding habitat and food. So what's kind of weird about this whole situation is clearly the urchins, there's some urchins that do well without the presence of sea stars, but everything else has a really hard time even if there's less predators around. Now in a normal food chain, you might expect to see a boom in the herbivore urchin population. And once all the kelp is gone, that huge population is suddenly going to starve and die off. And that will give the kelp some time to breathe and regrow. But the urchins are basically like ocean zombies. 
They're really hard to kill and they can slow their metabolism and basically lay in wait with little food up to 50 years. Wow. It's crazy. It's like this hibernation they go into. I did not know this. We definitely should have done the urchin episode before this. But I know. I, I it'll be regrets. exciting when we get to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like the teaser. It's like, it's like, you know, when you have Loki in like an Avengers movie or something and then he gets his whole own show later. Yeah, it's like a like an origin story after the the main story. Yeah, exactly. It's like how did this evil villain come to be? <laughs> We're really villainizing the urchin here when the real yeah. problem was capitalism all along. <laughs> anyway, all based. <laughs> yeah, so this all isn't just happening in one place. This urchin takeover is happening basically wherever the sea stars have been lost. Major pressure is being put on the kelp as they start to get eaten. And then something else happens. So between 2014 and 2016, a massive marine heat wave hits. And it's ominously called the blob. Now, the blob emerged off the coast of BC and spread to Northern California. And at this time, there were few storms and little mixing of water. Everything heated up. It was caused by part, partly by climate change and also mixing with El Nino waters in California. And to give an idea of the effect it had on kelp forests, it wiped out more than 90% of the kelp forests from a 200-mile section off the coast of Northern California, which is crazy. It was very devastating. To compound all this across the coastlines, and especially in California, pollution and overfishing killed off a lot of the natural predators and competitors of urchins, like abalone and sheep's head fish. And I also didn't mention this, but in 2011, a toxic algal bloom off the coast of Sonoma also killed off a ton of abalone and other predators of urchins. So, like, 2010 hit, and, like, bad times came (laughs) for everything that had to do with kelp forests. It's just not great. Yeah, that's so interesting. And like urchins just kind of won the lottery. (laughs) Yeah, specifically like those two or so species of urchin. At least those those were the two I kept reading about. So I assume it's just like purple and green for the most part. But nice and easy to remember their names. Yeah. And so where do otters fit into all this? Because I know when I was doing the research for otters, like they are also really important in protecting kelp forests and they're also a keystone predator for kelp forest ecosystems. Yeah, where otters live, the kelp forests are doing a lot better because otters will just eat so many purple urchins. They even like stain their teeth purple. They're eating so many, which is so cute. (laughs) It's like when you eat, like I imagine like a kid eating a fruit loop (laughs) and having like purple teeth. Yeah. As we know from the last episode, the sea otters are just regaining their footing along the West Coast, because they were extirpated from pretty much the entire region from California to Alaska, except for that one tiny population. That was such a wild story. I still can't get over that. And they really aren't expanding into Northern California, where so many of those kelp forests were decimated, because understandably, there's great white sharks there, and those sharks sometimes take exploratory bites of sea otters, so the sea otters don't really go over there. (laughs) <laughs> and I read that and I was like, yeah, that's, that's fair. I get it. 
So yeah, sea otters also aren't super useful in eating urchins from urchin barrens because these urchins are really skinny and emaciated. So they're just not very appetizing because these are all like hibernating starved urchins. So that's been an issue as well as they're like, okay, the sea otters definitely eat the urchins around the forests, but they don't go and create new habitat for the, or for the kelp. The Narwhal magazine had an awesome article on this story, and it's called Heideguai's Kelp Forests Disappeared. Here's how they're being brought back to life by Jason Goldman. I really recommend you give it a read, but I'll summarize some of the like main points here. It basically talks about how in Haida Gwaii off the coast of mainland BC, the kelp forests were home to all of these herring and salmon and rockfish, all kinds of stuff. And the indigenous communities of Haida Gwaii had a sustainable system of harvesting from the ocean and hunting just enough sea otters from certain areas so they weren't competing with them. And basically, you know, things were in balance at that point. And then once colonization started to happen and the fur trade began, there was this immense pressure to hunt sea otters commercially. And as we know, the otters became locally extinct. So with the otters gone, the sea urchins ate up all the kelp forests. And yeah, it's it's just not the same. So some propose that now that the sea otters have returned to much of BC, that they should be reintroduced to Haida Gwaii. But some local fishermen who collect red urchins and abalone oppose this because they don't want to compete with the otters. So it's a complex issue and local communities, particularly indigenous communities, need to be a part of management solutions. But I thought it was just a really cool story and I think it's worth a read. So go check out that story on the Narwhal website. Yeah, definitely. And that really adds up with what I was reading in my sea otter research as well. Apparently there are a lot of commercial divers who are really frustrated about sea otters because they are such efficient and like successful abalone hunters and and I guess sort of divers gatherers and if you listen to our abalone episode you know that abalone are still pretty rare and everything so and and they can be hard to to kind of get so that's really interesting it's kind of like farmers with wolves there's like an interesting kind of marine dynamic there. Or even, um, you know, killer whales were villainized for so long because people who were fishing felt that they were outcompeting them for salmon. So they, they would literally be shot on sight. That's so crazy. <laughs> Think about that and I'm yeah. like, whoa. Yeah, so yeah, go read that. But yeah, it's crazy that like this loss of kelp forests isn't just happening around North America and Mexico. It's happening in lots of parts of the world. Around Tasmania, they lost more than 95% of their surface canopy forming giant kelp forests over recent decades. And now these areas are covered in more urchin barrens, just like in North America. According to a paper by Evans et al., in 2012, the giant kelp forests of Southeast Australia became the first marine community listed as endangered under the Australian federal government's Environmental Protection Act. And one of the few places actually that kelp is doing well is actually in Chile, likely because the water down there is really quite cold still, and they aren't really facing the same pressures as kelp forests further north. In fact, historical research has suggested that these kelp forests have looked much the same since Darwin's ship the Beagle traveled through these regions almost 200 years ago. Now, of course, those forests 
aren't immune to all threats. Nutrient dumping from the land has resulted in toxic algal blooms, which is um, not great. <laughs> it's not not easy to, to deal with, but they're doing pretty well overall. That's so interesting. Yeah. Well, so are there any solutions for getting rid of these urchin barrens and bringing back kelp forests? Yeah. So, I mean, the first solution is get rid of the urchins. <laughs> and it's not easy to do. So lots of nonprofits and various organizations hire either just like commercial divers or commercial divers who might be out of work because of fishery crashes. And they go down there with these either either like hammers or these like wolverine style rakes on their hands. Um, and they go down there and, and destroy purple urchins, uh, which is kind of wild. And so they, they just get hundreds and hundreds of these urchins. And it does work to an extent, especially for places where they want to replant kelp. But there's just so many urchins. So it's not it's not ideal and it's not it's not a perfect solution and, and nothing would be. But that that is one thing that people are working on. Another idea that various people are working on is to make sure that the pesky urchins are actually valuable commercially. So prior to the major loss of kelp forests, red urchins were fished and their gonads were eaten as something called uni. I actually haven't heard of this. I don't know if you have, Sophia. I think so. Anyway, yeah, so so that's, you know, something that people eat. But when the kelp disappeared, so did the red urchins. They weren't uh, as tough as the purple and green urchins. Normally, purple urchin gonads are way too small to be eaten, but some people are fishing them out of the ocean, and then they fatten them up in urchin farms, and then they can sell them. So that is one way that people are trying to sort of create a sustainable seafood out of this situation. Now, another solution is to bring back the predators. So various projects are trying to reintroduce abalone to ecosystems to clean out the reefs and hopefully attract other sea life and natural predators of urchins to the areas. So basically trying to reintroduce the, the organisms that created a balanced ecosystem in the first place. And the University of Washington's Friday Harbor Laboratories is actually breeding sunflower sea stars with the hope of reintroducing these predators to their old habitats. So cross our fingers that they don't get afflicted with the same disease. But that is uh, another research group that's doing some really cool work. And of course, there's lots of work to be done to and being done to reintroduce sea otters across their historic range. Like I said, like they don't necessarily get rid of barrens, but they do support replanted kelp forests. So, and of course, who doesn't want to see more sea otters all across <laughs> this oh ocean? Oh my gosh, yes, <laughs> please, as many as possible. Yeah, so those are a couple solutions. And of course, you know, if we could just solve climate change, that would definitely help. Uh, yeah. Ultimately... If we're going to solve it for anything, <laughs> let's do it for the kelp forest. I agree. It's, I mean, it's it's one of those hard things where it's like we can do a lot of this sort of smaller solutions, but ultimately that's that's the the big boss that we have to beat in this video game called life. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like urchins look like the villain, but they're not really. Yeah. Yeah, they're just like the little like sub villains you have to fight. Can you tell that Sophie and I don't actually play video games <laughs> other than Animal Crossing? I was trying to think of like an example and I'm like, who are villains in Mario? And I couldn't think of a single one. 
Mm. They're just like it's like the urchins are the little like things that spawn and just kind of yeah like the little take away little like bombs that with the little feet and they just go like burp, burp, yeah burp, and you have to jump over them. That's what that's what the urchins are, <laughs> and the climate change is Bowser. Does that make sense? I, I think so. Here, so I could ask him. And the sea stars are the are Princess Peach. Yeah. I love it. This is probably really <laughs> offensive to Yeah, people <laughs> actually play are like, this is a mess. This is a terrible analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Stick to Animal Crossing. Uh, yeah, but, you know, there's something really, there. there's some really amazing research being done on all of this. And I was really amazed by, like, the sheer number of organizations and researchers involved in studying these massive issues and the huge number of really cool reintroduction projects and creative solutions people are finding to solve this big problem. So I think there is a lot of hope in that. If you live near an ocean or you scuba dive in areas where you see sea stars, maybe there's a bio blitz in your area like Sophia is studying. So definitely like reach out to your local institutions that work on marine conservation and maybe there's something that you can help out with or pitch in for or um, go and support your local research institutions monetarily. That's always nice. And I'm sure they could really use some money. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's that's kelp forests. There's a lot of fascinating characters in the story from the sea stars to the otters to the urchins. And overall, I think this story really shows just how complicated ecological science is. And how if someone tries to tell you a simple story about nature, they're probably at least mostly wrong. It's just so complicated. And it's really hard for me to try and break down the story into an hour. And I will tell you, I had to exclude a lot of details. There's just so, so many really interesting statistics out there, but they're just too specific and we couldn't include them all. And I hope you found all of this informative and not too depressing. And if you're sad, do what I do. And just like rewatch your favorite TV show. I always watch The Office over and over because the predictability of rewatching a TV show just really like calms me down and then I can go to sleep <laughs> and feel better in the morning. So that's my advice to you if you're feeling sad about it. Or go play Animal Crossing and just like feel at peace as you go pick your little apples and oranges. Yeah, totally. And if you can, come to the West Coast and go kayaking in some kelp forests and you'll really understand why they're so amazing. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Olivia. This was so informative. I really learned a lot and it lived up to the hype. I'm so glad. Yeah. I was like, oh God, is this just going to be like a textbook? I really hope it wasn't like a textbook for you guys. <laughs> no, I found it so engaging. And yeah, thank you everyone so much for listening. I hope I hope you enjoyed it too. Don't forget to check out our merch store at etsy.com shop slash beyond blathers. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at beyond blathers and check out our TikTok at beyond underscore blathers and tell a friend about our show. Yes, please spread the word, especially about our little kelp forest mini series because I'm very proud of it. I'm too. I like conservation focused stories. Totally. Well, tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye.